Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1902. This was the year that saw the end of the Boer War in May, and some players who had served were already returning to the game. Forty VFL players would serve in the Boer War, some after their careers were over, some interrupting their careers, and others starting their playing careers after they returned from service. Sadly, two VFL players would be killed, Charles Moore from Essendon and Stan Reid from Fitzroy. Coincidentally, both had played in the 1898 Grand Final. The service of 40 players and the death of two in the Boer War would be a precursor to the service of many more VFL players in conflicts throughout the 20th century. In June, the Federal Parliament passed the Women's Suffrage Act, giving most women over the age of 21 the right to vote in federal elections. While the second country in the world to allow women to vote after New Zealand, it did exclude non-European migrants and also Indigenous Australians of either sex who did not receive the vote at the federal level until 1962. But now, let's look at what was happening in the footy. The final system needed reviewing again. Geelong had been unhappy about the absence of a challenge option after topping the ladder in 1901, but being bundled out in the first semi-final. Formal conversation started in February, at the League Delegates meeting. At the same meeting... When questions about the rules of the game were raised, the chair quashed discussion, saying firmly, The less you tinker with the rules, the better. All that is wanted is a good central umpire. Many modern supporters would agree. The league meeting in March confirmed the return of the challenge system where the team on top of the ladder, after both the home and away and the sectional round, had more wins than the team that won the first final. There was one proviso. If the challenging team had the same number of wins as the team that won the first final, then they needed to have a higher percentage to issue a challenge. Carlton took the unprecedented step of employing a coach in 1902. The usual system was for the team captain to be effectively captain-coach. Carlton were looking to move on from being easy beats, and Jack Worrell, a former Test cricketer and Fitzroy Football Club captain in their VFA years, introduced a disciplined approach to training and recruitment. He told the press his aim in 1902 was not a useless attempt at the top in one season, but gathering into the fold young players capable of being developed into champions for the season after this. And while success would not be immediate, Carlton would begin to move up the ladder. The season would also see Essendon trying to repeat their success of 1901. Collingwood, looking to go one better, and other clubs, such as Fitzroy and Geelong, also looking to claim the Premiership. The season started on the 3rd of May. Geelong travelled to Princess Park to defeat the improving Carlton. Collingwood defeated South Melbourne at the Lakeside Oval, and Essendon lost at home to Fitzroy. The only team to win at home was Melbourne, who were not troubled by St Kilda. Round 2 saw the return of Collingwood's controversial Dick Condon. His life ban for abusing umpire Ivo Crap in season 1900 was rescinded after 18 months he would have a significant impact on season 1902. Early June saw some criticism on the punctuality of games. Half-time was only supposed to be 10 minutes, but there were games where half-time was extended to 20 or 21 minutes, and games were finishing late into the winter dark. On June 26, Victoria travelled to Adelaide for an interstate game, where in the blue jumper with the gold sash, the Victorians led for the first three quarters, but were unable to withstand a last-quarter surge by the home team. The South Australians won 11 goals 15 to 9 goals 8. 
This was followed up by a game on August 8 at the MCG, where the South Australians won again, 10 goals 8 to 9 goals 6. The June interstate game created a bye, and an opportunity for Collingwood to travel to Tasmania for a holiday and some exhibition games. The Magpies were so much better than the locals, Dick Condon began to experiment with a new kicking style. He used stab passes to quickly move the ball. The accuracy of the passes allowed for a faster moving game, as players led out to intercept the new kicking style. Just like Fitzroy in the previous system, Collingwood's return home to play Geelong turned into a saga. The Bass Strait crossing was difficult to say the least. They had to radio ahead to have their train held at Melbourne. They eventually landed and left Melbourne an hour later than scheduled. The players changed on the train and managed to get onto the ground before Geelong, albeit their former captain, Bill Proudfoot, was too ill to take the field. Clearly didn't enjoy the crossing of the Bass Strait. Perhaps the players were not sure that they would last the full match, so they started with a rush, using Condon's new stat pass, leaving Geelong flat-footed and three goals down at quarter time. The final bell saw the visiting Magpies up by more than six goals and a new playing style had been established. The following week saw Collingwood playing bitter rivals Fitzroy. As reported by the leader, the match was played at Fitzroy where a big crowd was assembled and excitement ran high. So high, in fact, that one spectator's personal remarks to Panham were much more than the latter could bear. After standing it for some time, Panham jumped the rails and punched his verbal assailant, and then resumed the game. In the abstract, of course, Panham was guilty of misconduct, but it must be remembered that a hiding is but mild punishment for the abusive and filthy language used by some of those disgusting people whose sole object in attending football matches seems to be create disturbance and who cannot be fair to the side for which they are not barracking. My experience is that onlookers are generally more to blame than the players for unpleasant occurrences at football matches. Panham avoided any consequences for his action, and Collingwood won the match with their new fast-passing system, 9 goals 14 to 6 goals 9. At the end of the home-and-away round, Collingwood was on top of the ladder, two games clear of Essendon, with Fitzroy and Melbourne making up the top four. Carlton had won six games under new coach Jack Worrell, but St Kilda had failed to win a game and would end up with another wooden spoon in another winless season. The sectional games, where the clubs were split into two sections for the three games, went as expected, and the final four had not changed. The first semi-final would be Collingwood against Fitzroy at the MCG, and Essendon would play fourth-place Melbourne at Princess Park. Collingwood had the right to challenge, given they had finished clear on top of the ladder. On Thursday, 4th of September, two days before the final started, the first VFA versus VFL match was played at the MCG in front of 7,000 people. The VFA had requested a match for several years since the 1897 split. The stronger VFL had resisted these calls as it had nothing to win and prestige to lose. However, they did agree to a request to raise funds for Fred McGuinness, who had played for Melbourne in both the VFA and VFL areas and was considered one of the finest players of the era. He had suffered an illness during the year, leaving him almost blind. The league team won 9 goals 17 to 4 goals 3. The umpiring was divided, with Waters of the VFA taking control for the first half, and Ivo Crap being the VFL's representative in the second half. In another innovation, there were substitute players allowed when a player from each team collided and went off injured. The first semi-final on Saturday, September 6th, saw about 7,000 spectators at Princess Park watch a thrilling match between Melbourne and Essendon. Melbourne led from the front for most of the day. The Fuchsias were a goal up at three-quarter time, 
but Essendon were the stronger side, coming home to win by 10 points. Across town at the MCG in the second semi-final, 12,000 people saw Fitzroy break down Collingwood's system of fast, accurate play. Despite injuries to players resulting in changes to the normal lineup, the Maroons stuck to their opponents like leeches. Their determination and focus saw them take a lead of 37 points by three-quarter time. Despite Collingwood kicking four goals to one goal in the last quarter, it mattered not. Although Collingwood was defeated, the return of the challenge option this season meant they would play the winner of the Fitzroy-Essendon match in a grand final. Geelong supporters must have been happy for Collingwood. The preliminary final, as it was described in the Argus, was held the following Saturday at the MCG, and over 24,000 attended on a fine day. At quarter time, Essendon led two goals five to one two. The second quarter was willing, with players going down like ninepins. Essendon's backman Gavin was knocked over and was dizzy to half-time, but no concussion tests in those days. Barker was leading the way for Fitzroy, although Essendon kept pushing on. At half-time, they led four goals five to the Maroons' three goals seven. This was extended to a 17-point lead at three-quarter time. Fitzroy had the breeze in the last quarter, and when Trotter gold, they were only 11 points down, with 15 minutes to go. Fitzroy supporters cheered their boys on, and the Essendonians thought of their former captain Stuckey, who, recovering from illness in the Gamby, had telegrammed the team to share his support. Essendon's defence held on, and they won by one point. Six goals, nine, 35, to Fitzroy's four goals, ten behinds, 34. As in 1901, Collingwood would be taking on Essendon for the Premiership, but in 1902, for the first time, the Grand Final would be held at the MCG, in time to become the home of football. And this game was promoted by the VFL as a grand final match in their advertising. While the price was still a sixpence and a shilling extra for the stands, people were asked to have the exact amount for admission as no change would be given at the gates. As for all previous grand finals, the umpire would be Ivo Crap. Essendon's captain was their centre-half back, Hugh Gavin, who would play 103 games for Essendon, and represented Victoria on multiple occasions. Known for his high marking, he had played in the 1901 and 1897 Premiership teams before taking over the leadership in 1902. Collingwood was led by Lawrence Gideon Lardy Tollock, who had also become captain in 1902. He had played with the club since the VFA days, and while not the most talented, was highly respected as a leader of the club. The teams had met twice during the season, with one win apiece. In its preview of the match, the Herald's reporter highlighted that not just anyone could play football these days. It had become a game for thoroughbreds, with training in the gym, whizzing of skipping ropes and dumbbelling to build up the muscles and knock the footballers into shape. Collingwood's training on the Thursday evening before the big game involved the men playing all over the field, rehearsing the situations they would encounter on Saturday. They zigzagged the ball on their system from one end to the other with dash. Essendon's men were also out on their training track, with Thurgood doing an amount of work that would tire two men. Overall, the Essendon team were well pleased with the magnificent condition of their lads. On the Saturday morning, the age warned its readers to get to the ground well before the 3pm start, given the expected crowd. Essendon would have one change from the team that defeated Fitzroy, with Baxter injured and replaced in the forward pocket by a star from the 1897 Premiership team, Pat O'Loughlin. The crowds did indeed stream from all directions and exceeded all expectations and densely packed the seats in Bakemans and the grandstand. There were 34,000 people at the ground. 
the biggest VFL crowd ever. Even the trees around the ground were studded with spectators. The Herald reported the build-up in the press room. A press man had brought his boy into the press room. Even pressmen can occasionally afford to rear a boy. Oh, Pa, said the boy, I'm sure Collingwood will win. My son, said the stern parent, did your mother tell you to barrack for Collingwood? Yes, Pa, said the boy. Then, my boy, your mother knows nothing of football, and I'll, if I hear you barracking for Collingwood, I'll give you the biggest licking. But the rest of the conversation cannot be repeated. Collingwood had left their defender, Jack Monaghan, out due to injury. Essendon supporters thought this would give their champion, Thurgood, more opportunity to shine. John Insull, playing his first season for Collingwood after joining from South Melbourne, would take Monaghan's place, and Cornelius McCormick would line up on Thurgood in Monaghan's absence. The teams clashed from the start of the first quarter, and there were five free kicks awarded before the first score was recorded. Rowell scored the first goal for Collingwood, roving the ball after Essendon's ruckman Jack McKenzie, taking a free kick, punted the ball into the man on the mark. Then it was Essendon's turn to press forward. Jack McKenzie, looking to make up for his error, had a shot at goal, but missed, only scoring a behind. Bill Proudfoot, Collingwood's captain the previous year, took the kick out, but it was picked up by Thurgood, who had another shot at goal, and also missed the big sticks, adding just one point. Shortly after, William Griffith tried again for Essendon, and the ball only had to clear a fall on Bill Proudfoot, but somehow, as he lay on the ground, he reached his arm out and stopped the ball one-handed, to the cheers of the Collingwood supporters. It was described by one reporter as a fine bit of clever and brainy work. Thurgood had another shot, but missed. Finally, Essendon's Hiskins took advantage of a free kick to put their first goal on the board shortly before the quarter ended. Despite Collingwood playing some of the better football, Essendon led one goal three to one goal two. The second quarter opened with some smart stab passing by Collingwood, from Fell to Condon to Lockwood to Pears, who scored the goal. Essendon were also playing well, but not taking advantage of their opportunities. Thurgood had another wild shot, and then shortly after, Mann saved Essendon with a mark in the back line, and moving the ball forward resulted in Thurgood taking a strong pack mark and finally punting a goal. But Collingwood were converting with accuracy when Insole and Condon kicked the ball forward to Allen, who got Collingwood's second goal for the quarter. At half-time, Collingwood led by a single point. Three goals, two behinds, 20 points, to Essendon. Two goals, seven behinds, 19. Despite not playing, Monaghan made a suggestion for Collingwood to make a significant change during half-time, moving Fred Leach onto Thurgood. Leach was one of those footballers that combined immense talent with an enigmatic approach to the game. In 1901, he was rated as the best centreman in the league, despite taking three weeks off for a holiday in Sydney and Brisbane. At the end of that season, he'd announced his retirement to keep out of the bumps and the bruises of the game but returned halfway through season 1902. Now, halfway through the grand final, he was to play a critical role in Collingwood's premiership attempt. Jack Monaghan was busy at half-time because Collingwood committee man and football manufacturer, Mr Thomas Sharon, had, on behalf of a group of footballers, boxers, cricketers and cyclists, who for some years had taken Sunday morning cab with Monaghan to St Kilda to enjoy sea bathing, presented him with a very handsome brooch for his wife to celebrate their recent marriage. There was great enthusiasm during this presentation. Halftime also saw some of the immense crowd spill onto the ground, squatting against the fence so they could watch the game and have some room to breathe. The bell rang for the start of the third quarter, and a peanut salesman, trying to take a shortcut, had to scamper off the ground when the players rushed forward. 
During the third quarter, Essendon kept trying to move the ball forward via the wing, but Collingwood's Charles Panham, the first man to play 100 VFL games, was in superb form, sending it back time after time. Collingwood centre-half forward Ted Roll got their first goal for the quarter and his second for the game. A player who'd been controversially accused of laying down in a game against Fitzroy earlier in the season was now making his presence felt in the biggest game of the year. Leach was blanketing Thurgood, reducing Essendon's chances to score. After Thurgood missed an easy mark, Leach relieved, Roll took a grand mark and passed it to the running Angus, who goaled for Collingwood. Gavin was trying to stem the Collingwood tide with his strong marking in defence, but the pressure was on. Finally, by moving the ball through the centre, Essendon's O'Loughlin was able to kick a goal, their only score for the quarter. When the bell tolled for three-quarter time, the Magpies were in front by ten points, five goals five to three goals seven. Essendon had the wind in the last quarter as they attempted to come from behind, but their inaccuracy was not helping. They kicked the first point of the quarter after seven minutes of play. The same olds were pushing on, trying to get in front to be the second team to get back-to-back VFL premierships, but then Collingwood's pressure became too much. After some clever play on the wing, Essendon's Edward Kennedy got a break and ran like a hare, but kicked the ball directly to Collingwood's Matthew Fell. The Collingwood system of stab passing saw the ball move from Fell to Fred Leach to Ted Lockwood, who scored Collingwood's sixth goal. Then, after some strong defence, the Magpies half-forward Ted Rowell was given a free kick by umpire Crap. Standing 65 yards from the goal, he used a punt kick against the wind and it looked like it might not make the distance. But to the disappointment of Essendon supporters and the delight of Collingwood, it cleared the pack and Rowell had his third goal and the Magpies were home. The dam had broken and the stab-passing system saw Collingwood score two more goals by Ted Lockwood, who was on the end of passes from George Angus, a Boer War veteran, and then Condon. It was Collingwood's quarter by four goals to Essendon's two behinds. The final bell rang and Collingwood were premiers for 1902. Nine goals, six behinds, 60 points, beating Essendon, three goals, nine behinds, 27. A convincing 33-point victory to the Magpies for their first VFL premiership. The players celebrated and amidst excited scenes in the dressing room, Essendon's captain, Hugh Gavin, still in his footy gear, dripping with perspiration, appeared. He congratulated Collingwood by saying the better team had won. He received the Collingwood cheers and then returned to further cheers in his own rooms. Subsequently, the players met each other in the MCC pavilion, shook hands and toasted each other's health. There was joy in the suburb of Collingwood, with every concertina brought out from retirement, and music, cheering and noise. Mostly noise. And the pubs were crowded in celebration too. So much so that some of them ran out of beer. Supporters had to travel to the home of their rivals, Fitzroy, to continue their celebrations. One enthusiastic barracker was found by the local station master, knocking on the door of a railway carriage, demanding to be served with just another beer, for the honour of Collingwood. And the grand final had found a new home. With a record crowd and more than a healthy gate-takings, the MCG would continue to be the home of grand finals for many years to come. With only wartime, reconstruction and, in 2020, the virus, causing a relocation. The league delegates meeting on the 23rd of September saw Essendon congratulate Collingwood on their premiership and an endorsement of the final system used for the season, while Collingwood's delegate, Ern Copeland, said that the citizens of Collingwood had expressed great satisfaction at the victory and that the game had been restored to its previous popularity. 
However, the fear of the impact of gambling was raised again, just as it had been at the end of the previous season. Ern Copeland stated that there was a fear that the betting element might break down the game's success. The delegates should do all in their power to eliminate the betting evil. And perhaps this comment on gambling reflected the growing controversy at Essendon, where there was trouble brewing with their long-time champion and hero of the 1901 successful finals campaign, Albert Thurgood. After his horror grand final, there are allegations that he'd been paid off by gambling interests. Essendon investigated his bank accounts and he was cleared, but the relationship was soured. Essendon delisted Thurgood from its 1903 list, but would not clear him to Collingwood. He stopped playing, but the controversy lingered. In 1906, he wrote a letter to the Argus stating that he was investigated and exonerated. He claimed he had offered himself for selection in 1903, but was denied the opportunity to play. He felt there was some animosity from officials, and this was the greatest insult that could be offered to any man. A letter from the Essendon president was published the next day, refuting these allegations. As if this was not enough... There was a petition circulated at the Essendon-Collingwood game that gained 810 signatures calling for Thurgood's return. He was persuaded to return to Essendon for eight games in 1906, but injured his ankle in the semi-final and retired permanently. Despite the controversy and accusations, Essendon did name Thurgood at number nine of their best 25 players in 2002. Join me next time as we explore season 1903 and see if there is any more tinkering with the final system and will Collingwood be able to follow up their first premiership with more success? If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.